0: Father, we come to you now as the God who speaks. You have spoken this universe into being. And your eternal word, your Son, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we pray, God, that now as you come to us in your written word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds by your spirit, and you would make us attentive to your voice, and would you mold and shape us through your word to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. amen. So last week, when I was doing some research on silence and solitude, I came across this awesome invention. It's an anti-distraction helmet. And it was created in, the ni- in 1925, <laughs> and it was called the Isolator. So the Isolator was developed in 1925 by inventor Hugo Greensbeck. And it looks pretty creepy, doesn't it? I mean, could you imagine? It was, it was created for uh, the office space. And so could you imagine going into the office, and there's your, your manager wearing one of these things? You'd be like, anything you tell me to do, I'll do. This is just scary. But, uh, uh, but it's funny. In the, um, in the promotional materials for this invention, it, it promised focus and concentration without the distractions that were arising from the modern world. And it listed some of those crazy distractions from the modern world, Uh, crazy distractions like street noise and the telephone bell, or um, the patterns on the wallpaper, or a fly crawling on the wall, or the curtains swaying back and forth. They said, you know, some of you, you're getting distracted all the time by all these crazy distractions, and so you need one of these um, isolator helmets. Now, of course, this was in 1925, long before uh, the invention of television, and of course, long before the invention of, uh, did, did I lose? I did. What happened? There it is. The isolator. Okay, so the isolator was invented, of course, before television. Actually, does anybody know the year that TV was invented? 1927. I looked it up this morning on the internet. Some of you are looking it up right now on the internet. Put away your phones. But of course, this was before the invention of television, long before Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and gaming and Netflix and the billion-dollar tech giants who use their algorithms and their uh, extensive research in order to find out how best to get your attention and to fix it on what they want it to. Uh, it was long before what uh, the, the tech writer uh, Linda Stone called the the spirit of our age, which she said was continual partial attention, and of course, the the real problem, I think, in the culture we inhabit is not so much just that there are distractions. Of course, distractions are problematic. The problem is that our, our culture we inhabit is doing something to our brains and to our souls that we need to be attentive to. It's sabotaging our ability for deep work. It is, it is destroying our ability to have deep thought and reflection. And it is doing stuff to our own souls. It is creating anxiety and depression and such. You know, uh, last week, uh, maybe some of you guys saw this, but NPR ran a story about how the Seattle School District right now is suing Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for the harm it's doing to young people's mental and emotional health. And check this out. The 91-page complaint blames them for worsening mental health and behavioral disorders, including anxiety, depression, disordered eating, cyberbullying, making it more difficult to educate students and forcing schools to take steps, such as hiring additional mental health professionals, developing lesson plans about the effects of social media, and providing additional training to teachers. And in their complaint, they state this. Defendants have successfully exploited. So the defendants, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, have successfully exploited the vulnerable brains of youth, hooking tens of millions of students across the country into positive feedback loops of excessive use and abuse of defendants' social media platforms. Worse, the content defendants curate and direct to youth is too often harmful and exploitive. Now, of course, it's not just the youth that are suffering from this sort of thing. Uh, I, I read this week that user, the users 65 and older are the fastest-growing demographic on Facebook, uh, going from 24 percent in 2018 to 40 percent in 2020. You know, and, and look, the reality is, I think, I think all of us are, are recognizing the effect and the impact that so much of the devices that we're constantly using are having on our bodies, on our minds, our ability to concentrate. Uh, you know, you just think, um, try for, for, for a minute to lock your phone away or your, 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 your treasured device, maybe for 24 hours or 48 hours, and just see how you're feeling inside, and oftentimes you're thinking, you, you kind of have this, this, this gut reaction to go and grab something and to touch it and to quill sort of the anxiety within. And uh, this situation is creating, I think, something that, that is very harmful for our souls. Last week, I read to you a quote from Rich Viotis. And I think it it bears repeating. But commenting on our current situation, he says this. He says, the speed at which we live does violence to our souls. Our souls were meant to be tended to. There's a preciousness, a tenderness to our souls that requires slow observation. And so when we're living at this chaotic pace, we don't give our souls the opportunity to rest to breathe, to receive the nutrients from God that we desperately need. And so we began a series uh, a couple weeks ago entitled Abide, Practicing the Presence of God. And what we're talking together about is how we can engage in practices that help us cultivate a deeper and a more meaningful life with God. We're talking about how, how it is that we can develop the kind of posture in life where we are leaning into God like a branch into a vine, so that we might be able to draw from him those vital nutrients that actually feed life within our souls. You know, I think the, the goal of our series could be it's stated well by Dallas Wood. He put it like this. He said, "The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before. Our minds. The first thing he says we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret to caring for our souls. And so we've been talking together over these, these weeks about how it is that we can cultivate these practices that help us keep God before our minds and within our souls. And we said last week that, that one of the keys is to develop Uh, a practice of withdrawing into the secret place, uh, creating a space that is distraction-free where you can spend time alone in the presence of God. And so last week, we we talked a little bit about the secret place. This week, I want to talk to you a little bit about developing a deeper life of prayer. You know, it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that prayer is beyond question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. St. Teresa of Avila put it like this. She said, prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than an intimate sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. Now, I think a lot of us Uh, believe those words to be true from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and St. Teresa of Avila that that prayer is this activity of of cultivating an intimate love relationship with God. It is the highest and most noblest thing we can do. We are at our best and at our highest when we are on our knees before God in prayer. But I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, prayer is also kind of difficult. I, I wonder if anybody in the room finds prayer a little bit tricky and difficult. And and there's there's many and sundry reasons for this. I mean, uh, some of us have intellectual problems with prayer. You know, we we believe in the sovereignty of God. and, And we can think to ourselves, look, if God is going to do what God is going to do, then why do I pray anyway? I mean, what difference does it make? And of course, some of you have personal problems with prayer. You have prayed for a prodigal to come home, and the prodigal has not come home. Or maybe you've prayed for a very long time for a spouse, and the spouse, the, the, the marriage is not being reconciled. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you, you, you have just longed for the healing of a parent, and God never healed your parent. And you just think, like, prayer doesn't work. Or maybe it works for some people, but it just doesn't work for me. And, and I think a lot of us you know, are doers. And uh, maybe we, we measure the value of a day by how much we get done. And some of you are so aggressive about this that when you have your to-do list and you accomplish something that wasn't on the list, you go ahead and write it on the to-do list and then check it off just to make sure you got credit. Anybody? Yes. Yes, amen, yes. But quite frankly, it can just feel sometimes like prayer isn't accomplishing much. And, and then, of course, there's a perpetual problem of distractions when we do pray. I mean, some of us would wish for an isolator, you know, a helmet when we go into prayer. And I, I, can, I can connect, and maybe you can, with the words of John Dunn when he said this He said, I throw myself down in my chamber, and I call in and invite God and his angels thither. And when they are there, I neglect God and his angels for the noise of a fly or for the rattling of a coach, for the whining of a door, a memory of yesterday's pleasures, a fear of tomorrow's dangers, a straw under my knees, a noise in my ear, a light in my eye, and anything, a nothing, a fancy, a shimmer in my brain troubles me in prayer. Now, what's crazy is, is John Donne wrote that back, I think, in the 17th century. And, and how much worse for so many of us. And so prayer can be difficult. And, and I think a lot of us do have, have trouble with prayer. We have issues with, we have difficulty with prayer for a variety of reasons. And if you've ever felt that way, you are not alone because there was an unnamed disciple who walked up to Jesus one day and no doubt the disciples had watched Jesus and they watched him withdraw often, frequently to that secret place, and sometimes spend an hour or a night in prayer to his father. And they knew that Jesus was, above all else, a man of prayer. And so one day, an unnamed disciple came to Jesus, and he asked them, look at this. He says, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. You know, it was common for a rabbi in the first century to have a specialized prayer that they would school or teach their disciples in. And the disciples had noticed that John the Baptist had taught his disciples how to pray. And it seems at this point, all the disciples had done was watch Jesus pray. And it's interesting, you know, we don't know why Jesus didn't come right out and just draw him aside and teach him before. Maybe Jesus was waiting for them to ask. Maybe sometimes Jesus is just waiting for us to ask the right question. And finally they ask, and it's interesting in the in the Gospels, you know, they never say, Jesus teach us how to preach. I mean, no doubt, Jesus was a remarkable preacher. And, and they listen to his parables, and yet they never say, Jesus, teach us how to teach. And they watch his exorcism. They never say, Jesus, teach us how to exercise demons. But they did say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. It's as if they knew, they discerned that the secret to his life was the life he had cultivated with his father. So, so, so they say, Jesus, and, and on behalf of us all, right? This disciple asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And in response, Jesus delivers a concise, powerful, and incredibly helpful teaching on prayer. And I want you to notice just three simple things about what Jesus says in response to the request, teach us how to pray. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus gives us words. The disciple says, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And look at his response. He said to them, when you pray, say this. (laughs) Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And so Jesus gives us words. You know, I can remember the very first time I was asked to pray in public. I was a teenager. And some of you might have this memory. And uh, uh, we broke up into prayer, prayer groups and youth group. and. Uh, the youth pastor asked us to go around and to pray out loud for other people. And I was like, I've never prayed out loud. I don't know what to say. And I was all nervous and anxious. And and I said to my youth pastor, I don't know what to say. And he said, don't worry, Josh. Just pray whatever is on your heart. And then I looked down into that dark, deep, vacuous hole in my heart, and I found nothing. You know, I was 16 years old. And, you know, it's interesting when the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus teaches how to pray. Notice Jesus doesn't say, just pray whatever's on your heart. Instead, Jesus gives them words. Jesus gives them words. He says, pray like this. And he gives them a form or a set prayer. Now, I know sometimes we think, well, if I have these set words that Jesus gave me, then it won't be sincere. And of course, that's true. Very often, you can seek to engage in prayer, you can pray set prayers or written prayers, and they cannot be sincere. But you know, sometimes the most helpful thing you can receive is somebody give you words to say at the appropriate moment. You know, when I was. Uh, I think 24 years old, Alicia was 21. We stood before each other in front of a large gathering of people at an altar, and we exchanged vows. And the vows that I spoke to Alicia, I did not write myself. They were given to me, and yet in that moment, there were no truer and better words I could have spoken. And in that moment, there were words that I could not have meant more than the words that were handed to me, and I spoke. And, you know, since, since that time, you know, I've performed dozens of weddings. And uh, throughout, you know, my, my time being a pastor, you know, people will come to you, and there are, there's all kinds of things they want to do in, in weddings that are kind of unique. And uh, sometimes people want to do a little dance And sometimes they want to sing a song to their bride or groom. Uh, Sometimes uh, I had one wedding where uh, this couple created this weird object throughout their engagement and then they took little video clips of it, and then they spliced it together, and they showed it in their wedding. And I just thought that was weird, you know? But <laughs> people do all sorts of unusual weird things in weddings. And, and usually what I mean with couples are like, is this OK if we do this? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, it's that, your wedding. It's your day. There's one thing I will not allow for when I perform a wedding, is I don't let a bride and groom write their own vows. Because I'm like, you don't know what to say. And for the, the, I mean, I, I, if this was you, I, I don't mean to offend you. I probably wasn't at your wedding when you wrote your vows. <laughs> but you know, I've heard people write, there. And I'm just like, that is so bad. <laughs> and you don't know what to say on this day. The church needs to tell you what to say. And, and, and here it's like Jesus says, look, you are stepping into the presence of the infinite and the eternal, the omniscient, on, omnipresent, You know, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of heaven and earth. And what do you say? And and Jesus says, I am going to give you words. And notice these words are brief. I mean, it takes all of 30 seconds to say. And perhaps the reason why Jesus gives us such a brief set of words is because there are other important things to do when we withdraw in quiet to be in his presence. Important things like listening and thinking and contemplating. There are other important things to do, and so Jesus gives us brevity of speech when we are in His presence. Now, I don't, maybe you're thinking, like, what are you, what are you saying, Josh? The Lord's Prayer is simply there for us to memorize and repeat? Well, on one level, yes. Please memorize and repeat and use the Lord's Prayer. I mean, oftentimes, I will go to bed at night reciting the Lord's Prayer in my head. I wake up in the morning reciting the Lord's Prayer. I can go throughout my day and at different times just breathe the Lord's Prayer. But of course, Jesus in our text is giving us way more than words. Jesus is giving us words, but he's given us more than words. In our text, Jesus is giving us a distillation He's giving us a distillation of what prayer is in its very essence. And I find this so helpful. In these six short phrases, Jesus captures just about the full scope of life that we can bring before the face of God. Jesus, in, in essence, is given us a guide that should direct our prayers. It's a model. And Jesus is telling us in this prayer, look, prayer isn't a matter of of learning the right magic trick. You know, so often in our culture, we think about prayer almost like magic. And what is magic? Magic is all about being able to manipulate the forces around you to be in your favor. And very often people talk about prayer like that. I got to learn the right formula. I got to rub the genie bottle the right way so that I can get God to do what I want Him to do. You know, I need a date. I need a mate. I, I need to do well on this test. And so, how can I pray right so that I can get I can harness God to get me what I want? And Jesus in our prayer teaches us a different way. Of thinking about prayer, a different way of engaging and practicing prayer. He gives us a distillation of what prayer is, and prayer is not that. It is not magic, it's not a genie, God is not a cosmic vending machine, He is not our giant sugar daddy in heaven. Um, God is not just, you know, like the best thing an American could ever want, you know, something to help us achieve our dreams and get success. No, he is God, and this prayer is a distillation of how we can approach him. It's a teaching on what prayer is. And so according to this prayer, what is prayer? Well, for Jesus, prayer first is adoration. It is that voice we speak to name the infinite beauty and holiness and goodness and sovereignty and power that is God. It is the posture of reverence and awe where we bow and we we speak of God's holiness. He says, hallowed be your name. Prayer is adoration. Prayer is also protest. He says, your kingdom come. Prayer is protest. What is prayer protesting against? It is protesting against the brokenness and the injustice and the darkness that is constricting God's creation that's constricting your hearts and your lives, that is leading you into addictive behaviors and patterns, that is making you feeling so anxious and depressed, and it's dark, and it's sad, and there's violence, and stuff is falling apart. And prayer is a protest against the kingdoms of darkness, and it is a prayer that God would have his own kingdom break in, his kingdom would come on earth even as it is in heaven. It is a prayer, it's a longing, a hope-filled longing that the kingdom of God that broke into the world, that was inaugurated in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension and outpouring of the Holy Spirit that that kingdom that was inaugurated would continue to grow and break out, and ultimately that Jesus Christ would return and he would establish his kingdom finally on earth, that kingdom of peace and justice where there will be no death or tears or crying. And so when you pray your kingdom come, you are, you are kicking against the darkness. There's a, a great song by an artist called Bruce Coburn. Uh, called Lovers in a Dangerous Time. And he's got this line where he says, sometimes there's lovers in a dangerous time. It feels as if your love's a crime. And then he says this, nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. Sometimes you got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Prayer is kicking at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Prayer is protest against the darkness. And prayer is surrender. Your kingdom come and your will be done. What is prayer but the open hands that say, God, I am not coming to you to coerce you to do my will. I come to open up my heart and life and surrender to your will. Prayer is surrender. And prayer is trust. It is trust in the provision of God, the gracious provision of God, that he will be for you today what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. Trust His provision in the hand of God. The God that provided for His people throughout history will be there to provide for you. And it is going to Him in dependence. It is, it is the voice that casts all of your cares on Him for today, for He cares for you. You know, I, I had a friend in Albuquerque, and um, he was going through just a horrific time in his marriage. And it was just like his life was just imploding and falling apart. And he was already beset with depression and deep levels of anxiety. And he said to me at one point, he said, the only way I can get through the day is to pray that God would give me what I need for the next half hour. Give us this day our daily bread. Prayer is trust. Prayer is honest confession. Prayer is the voice of honesty before the face of God. God, I have injured and hurt people who you love. God, I have injured and hurt people I love. God, I confess to you. And it's the honest acknowledgement that you have also been the recipient of wounds. It is speaking truth about your own woundedness. That's why you say, God, help me forgive others as you have forgiven me. It, it, it's, a, it's a voice of honesty before the face of God. And prayer is dependence. Prayer is dependence upon God. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is depending upon God that God can be for you, that power that breaks the darkness that is strangling your life. So prayer, what is it? Prayer, Prayer is adoration, prayer is is protest, prayer is surrender, prayer is trust, prayer is, is confession, prayer is dependence, this is prayer. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, when you withdraw into that secret place, let this be your guide. Let this be the distillation of the the words you voice before your your, your Father in heaven. Let this be your cry to God. Speak these words. Use this as your frame and, and bring the full scope of your life to God and come to him in adoration and surrender and protest and dependence and trust and honesty. Come to God in this way. He says, withdraw into that secret place. So Jesus, number one, he gives us words. And, and Jesus gives us, in our text, secondly, a distillation. But thirdly, I want you to see that in our text, Jesus, Jesus gives us a gift. You know, in, in, this, in this prayer, Jesus is giving us a profound and transformative gift. You know, if you stop and think about it, um, prayer Prayer is kind of ludicrous. I mean, we would draw into a quiet place, hopefully to emerge into all of life and continue that same conversation. We're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. We are talking not about a specialized place where God dwells. God is imminent to us. In him, we live and move and have our being. God is nearer to you now than the, than the air on your skin. And our whole life, we want to live before his face. And yet, the key, I think, to to learning the practice of the presence of God is to withdraw into the secret place and to cultivate this life of adoration and trust and surrender and dependence and honesty before the face of God. And so Jesus gives us this prayer, but this prayer is a gift because if you stop and think about it, I mean, like, who is the one to whom we voice these words? It is the infinite and immortal God. You know, there's this passage in in the book of Exodus where Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders ascend on Mount Sinai, and at that moment, the cloud of God's presence has descended, and the the, the mountain has been shaking, and the thunder is roaring, and the lightning bolts are coming down, all, all, all exuding the, the transcendent glory of God. And, and they ascend to, in, to meet with God. And the text tells us, it says, and they saw the God of Israel. And then it says, and the pavement underneath his feet was like sapphire. And there the description ends. They see the God of Israel, and we're waiting for a description, and all they can describe is the pavement underneath his feet. God is indescribable. He is incomprehensible. Like our finite, we finite creatures of dust, we cannot wrap our minds around the infinite and eternal one. And how can we speak in this presence? You know, there's a great. Quote from Annie Dillard. Uh, she she said this. You know, she's speaking about how, how crazy it is to go into the presence of God, and she says this. I think she says, "Where's it's gone?" I'm just going to have to read it to you. She says this. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs <laughs> sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what side of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does none of us believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may someday wake and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. I mean, who is this one before whom we speak? What do you say in the presence of this kind of God? I mean, God, you can, you can think, well, God is kind of like us, but he's only bigger, Listen, God is not like us, only bigger. God is, is altogether unlike us. That's what we mean when we say holy. He has no beginning and no end, and he is our beginning and our ultimate and final end. He... he, he He is infinite beauty from whom came every beauty that your eye beholds. He is infinite goodness from whom every finite bit of goodness that you've ever tasted and experienced has come. He is infinite beauty and infinite goodness and infinite love and infinite holiness. He is the source of all that is good and holy. He is in in, in his presence, I mean, mountains shake, and thunders roar, and the majestic seraphim cover their eyes, and do not cease crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy. And in his presence, even righteous Isaiah says, I am undone. And St. Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And the apostle John falls at his feet as one dead. I mean... What do you say in the presence of this kind of infinite and ineffable being, this holiness and this power? Jesus says, here is what I want you to say. Say, Father. You know, the theologians teach us that uh, our language about God is only analogous at best, that our words don't have a one-to-one correspondence with God. I mean, how could human language from finite creatures of dust fully capture the infinite one? And so all language we use to speak about God is analogous at best, which simply means that it draws a parallel and a comparison to help us move in the direction of what we are talking about when we are talking about God. And notice when Jesus looks for, when he draws upon an analogy to help us connect with God, he draws upon the analogy of Father. Now, I know for some, you know, you might think, well, is God a gendered God? No, God, God has no gender. God is spirit. You know, the scriptures tell us God is not a man, you know? It's an analogy, it's an analogy. Jesus is saying, if you, want to, if you want to know what it's like to enter into your, the presence of, of God, think about the perfect father. And think about how that father might bend their ear and lean in and empathetically listen and hold and care for that child and be near them. And, and Jesus is saying, this is God to us. When you draw near to God, He is your heavenly Father. So when you speak to Him, say, Father. But Jesus is doing something else with this analogy. When Jesus is teaching us to name God Father, He is telling us that He is inviting us into a relationship that He Himself has with His Father. You see, the infinite and eternal God, who is infinite unity and simplicity, has existed in an eternal community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all of eternity past. And the Son who shares infinite love and relationship with the Father and the Father who is always pouring out his love on the Son and the Spirit who is the love that binds them together as it were, the glue, the the, the infinite love that called all things into being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus comes into the world saying, I am inviting you to become so connected with me, to become united with me, so that the kind of infinite and eternal bond of love I know you can share in. Friends, this is the deepest mystery of the Christian faith, that the eternal Son of God entered into this world to become human, to take upon our estate, to bear in his bodies our suffering and our sin and our shame and our guilt. He came into this world to step into our place and then bring all of that to an end on the cross so that he might open up his arms and welcome welcome us into his place so that we can be beloved sons and daughters of God, so that you can be a recipient of the eternal love of God. And so what is prayer? Prayer is that invitation to you and me to withdraw regularly, habitually, into the secret place, into a place of undistraction, where you are not disturbed, where you can sit in quiet and stillness before the face of God, and where you can speak to your Father about how beautiful He is. You can speak to your Father about the deep needs in your life that you need to lay at his feet. You can entrust yourself to God. You can depend upon God. You can can protest with God against the darkness and long for God to work his way in the world. It is our invitation to root our lives in God. Now, we're going to close out our service together by sharing at the Lord's Supper. And... So I'm going to invite our servers to come forward and those who are going to pray for us to also come forward. And just a little bit of word on what we're going to do. So the Lord's Supper, as I will never get tired of saying, it is the table of God, as it were, It's like a banquet table in the house of God where he invites us to come and to eat at his table as his sons and daughters. We take this bread and we drink this cup, these tangible physical elements in recognition, in memory, that God became flesh in Christ among us to bear in his body our sin so that he might take our place. And we ingest them to realize and to remember that our life is nourished and sustained by this love, and we have been welcomed into his family as sons and daughters. You know, if you have come today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, You know, don't feel pressured to participate in this. This is a a practice that Jesus offered to his disciples. And you're welcome to come forward and just pass by the tables and go back to the seats or just stay in your seat or whatever's most comfortable. But I want you to know this. God came in this world for you. And he welcomes you to come and open up your life and to receive his gift of friendship and love to become a son or daughter of God simply by opening up your life and surrendering to him. Join with me in prayer as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper. And then I'm going to invite you from the back rows forward to just start coming forward and receive the bread and the cup. Uh, There's also going to be a couple folks on the side uh, who are going to be available to pray over you. If you need prayer, we would love to pray for you. And come and just receive the bread and the cup. And then if you would like prayer, you can um, stop by with one of these folks on the side. So uh, let's pray together. Father, as we approach this table once again today, we are reminded of the tremendous gift of your love that we have been called sons and daughters of God, that we have been welcomed into your home and we have been given a seat at your table and we are welcome to be nourished and sustained in your love. And I pray, God, that even as we come forward to receive this bread and this cup and hear these words spoken over us, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, God, would, would we be reminded again that we belong to you and that we are loved people. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.